Hello, 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 and welcome to the Bandroom Podcast. My name is Dylan Maddox. And I'm Kate Nishimura. And, and how's it going, Kate Nishimura? It's going great, Dylan. We were uh, just commiserating about the heat, but you know, in the winter we <laughs> complain about the cold and you know, so yeah. I guess we're, we're being too picky, but it, it is very, it's very hot here yeah. right now. In and as I mentioned, Ontario, people, anyway. people for me are, are just like, stop complaining. You're moving to Arizona. You have no idea what you're getting <laughs> yourself into. So I don't know. What's a dry heat? People, it'll be people different. Ha- it'll be different. Oh, maybe. But I remember when I moved, uh, for, just from Toronto to Sudbury, it was like, mm-hmm. oh, don't worry. It's a dry cold, but it's still cold. <laughs> like it was very it's cold. cold. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It it does make a difference, even just moving further further north in the province. You'll you'll miss it, I bet. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I'll send you pictures when of you're me like a cacti. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> Palm <clears throat> trees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it'll be good. <clears throat> enough about that. One thing that mm. we want to we've been celebrating the past couple of weeks, but today is is an important celebration too, because as of a couple of days ago, we cracked. We cracked uh, 10,000 downloads. Isn't yeah, that crazy? That is. It's very exciting. Thank you to all the people yeah. who have been listening because that's that's yeah. a big deal for us for sure. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, fantastic. I'm, I'm hoping you're enjoying those 10,000 downloads, uh, whoever you are. Uh, but no, it is, it is uh, I'm very grateful for, for everyone who listens and supports the podcast. So thank you so much. Yeah. And, uh, and you support the podcast probably because of the great guests that we have. And man, oh man, did we have a great guest for you today. Uh, we were able to sit down with the wonderful Jacob Keynes, who is a conductor, a musicologist, and a performer based in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Uh, and he's doing some really fantastic work that we, that we spoke about today. And it's, uh, it's, it's just so interesting <laughs> How you meet people early in your life, and then you go off and do your own thing, even in the same field, and then mm-hmm. at some point you come back together. So uh, I will em- embarrassingly admit that Jacob was my Acadia band camp counselor <laughs> when I was a high school <laughs> student, and now we've been reunited at last. Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, I think I would. I would love. I was a camp counselor, and I. Yeah. I think I would love to to reconnect with like anybody from that era of of my life who's now doing like really <laughs> awesome things making big contributions to the world that we work in you know i think i think that's a really really exciting thing yeah well i'm sure i'm sure now after this you're going to get so much fan not fan mail but hey i was i was your i was a camper whenever you know it's going to be great i um, would love that bring it on <laughs> I never did that for Jacob, but, uh, no. but anyway, well, interviewing him for to, a podcast, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. And it, yeah, it was, it was just a really great conversation and, um, you know, he conducts the Dalhousie wind ensemble at Dalhousie university, the mm-hmm. fountain school of the performing arts and, uh, doing uh, some fantastic work that you'll hear about, uh, as well as he's founded uh, classical queer, which is, is a blog and does, he does a lot of really, um, great interviews. I just, I'm, I'm constantly inspired by the conversations that we have on this podcast. And today was no exception. Yeah, absolutely. But before we get to all of that inspiration and new perspectives, would you consider doing us a favor? And Kate, Kate Nishimura, what favor would that be? (laughs) 
that favor would be if you, fine listeners, could head over to whatever podcast platform you are listening to right now and make sure that you have subscribed to the Band Room Podcast. If it's Apple Podcasts that you're listening to, please leave us a rating and a review and hopefully a good one at that because it really does help other people to find the podcast. It sure does. So yeah, so thank you for uh, going to, well, not even going to do it, just thinking about it. That's our first thing to inspire. So thank you for thinking about it. It would be a great help to us if you went and, and did that. The other uh, fun thing that we did is, as usual, recorded a fun bonus episode. Mm-hmm. And this one was uh, no exception. It was fun. It was fun. Uh, it seems that we've made, well, it's my own fault and it's your fault as well. But uh, just gigs <laughs> gone wrong. Yeah. I know, that's uh, a So yeah, now. it was an exciting story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I'm wondering, I because, you know, I find the gigs gone wrong kind of cut you off from it because, you know, you weren't like a freelance, you were a freelancer, but not like a, in the gigging sense, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I've got to think of something new to, I want to hear some crazy Kate Nishimura stories. <laughs> hey, we're, we're all about featuring the crazy stories of our guests though, right? So it's okay. Yeah. Well, fine. I'll f- mark my words. Yeah. Mark my and words. And how I'll can people it. listen to that super fun gigs gone wrong story if they would like to hear it? And this is why we make a good team. Kate gets me back on track. <laughs> uh, they can go. <laughs> they can go to Patreon.com/slash/BandroomPod. That's Patreon.com/slash/BandroomPod, where you can hear our conversation we had today, as well as a great growing back catalog of other phenomenal, hilarious stories Mm -hmm. and experiences that you can learn from laugh with and etc so thank you so much for um going to check that out and and how you can become part of the brp patreon community however that's not what you're here for you're here to listen to a wonderful conversation so without further ado here is our conversation with jacob keynes we are for another exciting bandroom podcast it's it's so funny how you know you meet people very early in your life like very early in your life and you really don't know if you'll see them again and today's one of those people who uh, i met when i was actually a high school student (laughs) Um, so i'm so happy and glad that we could uh, welcome musicologist conductor and performer extraordinaire jacob keynes welcome to the bandroom jacob Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to be here. It's it's funny that you say that uh, we met you were when you were in high school. Uh, similarly, when you uh, meet so many people over the course of your uh, life and career, you forget where you meet people. And I had forgotten <laughs> that that's where we had met. <laughs> so, yeah, there it is. But it's nice to be here. It's great. Acadia Band Camp. Jacob was my camp. He, he yeah. was my camp counselor. <laughs> Many, many years ago, yeah. Anyway, you go way we won't back. talk anymore about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I'm so glad that, that you could be here. And uh, I guess we'll start where we always start with everyone, just so uh, we can learn about mm-hmm. you. Where, why, and how did you start your musical journey? Uh, I started uh, probably pretty averagely in kind of school band. Uh, I started, well, actually, I think I, I took a year of piano lessons before I started actual band. Um but my mm-hmm. 
family is uh, completely not musical at all, at least my, my parents' generation. Um, but they always say things skip a generation. So my uh, grandparents <laughs> were quite musical, um, but not my parents. And they would have no problem with me saying that. They, they know. Um, <laughs> But they, they really wanted me to, to take a, a music education uh, as, a, as a kid. So I started piano lessons. And then when I was uh, old enough for my fingers to reach keys, I started playing clarinet. Um, and I always Woo-hoo. tell this lovely, sweet story about my grandfather. I had no idea what I wanted to play. I went into uh, the band uh, tryout having absolutely no idea what instrument would be a good fit. And my grandfather had said before I went in, he said, you tell them you want to play the licorice stick. And I said, I have no idea what that is. But he said, the licorice stick is the instrument for you. That's the one. And so I remember going in and and talking to who is now a very close friend, Paul Barrett, who's a a phenomenal (laughs) uh, high school conductor and and musician. And, you know, grade three, me saying, I want to play the licorice stick. That's what I want to play. It's an absurd (laughs) image in my head. But Anyway, so that's where I started. And then I uh, went through the band system at uh, Cobblecote Educational Center in Truro, which mm-hmm. um, was a huge system. It was kind of the biggest system east of Montreal. We had a, a really massive size school um, mm. and a really great teacher. Paul was a, a phenomenal music teacher. And so I uh, started playing clarinet and saxophone. Uh, I kept playing piano on the side. I've always kind of been a... Um, a sideline pianist. I never call myself an actual pianist because uh, that's an insult to pianists. Um, but I get by, and I I do a lot of piano work. I've, like I've worked as a pianist. I was a church music director mm-hmm. for years. Um, but I I always quantify it with I'm a clarinetist who can play piano well enough to yes. to pass. Okay. I'm an actual pianist. Um, but yeah, so I, I went through the the band program uh, and just started playing in literally everything, any ensemble that I could uh, get my little fingers on mm-hmm. and did that until high school and then went to Acadia, which is where I would have met you the first time, Dylan. Yeah. And uh, we uh, did a bachelor of music education. And then uh, at the end of that program, it was uh, time to think about either entering the real world or keeping in academia. So I chose academia and uh, went and did a master's <laughs> of musicology right. to avoid, uh, you know, real life. And uh, yeah, that's kind of where it where it started. But it was really uh, the start was because it was kind of what my parents wanted me to do. They really felt like they had missed uh, mm-hmm. a music education. So mm-hmm. they uh, they really instilled in me the importance of of doing it. But you know, I. I also recognize that they were so lovely that they, they never pushed it. They were never really heavy handed with the, you yeah. have to stay in lessons. And when it was time for me to quit piano lessons, cause I didn't want to do that anymore. They <laughs> let me, yeah. it was better cause it meant I kept playing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, Kate and I have, have actually, I think when I first interviewed Kate, we spoke about exactly that and how neither of us were really like super pushed to go take lessons or, and I remember I had to fight to, to, to for the trumpet and, um, but yeah, so there's, there's something to be said there that it will keep the passion alive if you choose it. Yeah, yeah totally. Please. I think if, if they had pushed it and if they had, uh, really been heavy handed with the, you know, you have to practice this much every day and you have to do this and you have to, I, I really would have quit and never gone back. Um, mm-hmm. and I think it, it just allowed me to genuinely love, playing without feeling too heavy about it um 
And so it, it really served me well. I think it, it was the right choice, at least for me. Yeah. And I'm also thinking that we should probably get some kind of clarinet sponsorship going on here because I don't know how this happened. I forgot you were a clarinetist for a second. <laughs> and I was like, this is like the fifth week in a row. Do you have row. a ton of clarinetists? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've had a couple, a, a few in a row. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's fine. That's fine. It's good. Represent. I'm a, I'm a clarinetist too. Well, specifically bass Same. clarinetist. But you know, yeah. do you know what though? I, I, I am as well. That's really fantastic to hear. I, now that we're talking clarinet, I will yes. say I would okay, never but. consider myself a B flat player. I am fundamentally nope. a bass player and I will yes. play B flat if I have to. That's those words have been uttered from my mouth so many times. <laughs> I will play B flat if I have to. <laughs> it's so much more That's fun. Awesome. Bass is so much more fun. It is so much more fun. Yeah, you get to have your own part, make the floor rumble, you know, mm -hmm. all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll see how many more converts we get. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, so you mentioned uh, going continuing in, in academia so as to avoid real life. Um, and as funny as that is, I, I do want to hear about your experience. So at the University of Ottawa, you wrote a master's thesis titled Frederick Fennell and the Eastman Wind Ensemble, the transformation of American wind music through instrumentation and repertoire. So could you tell us about what drew you to study this topic and maybe even a few fun facts or highlights about Fennell? Yeah, it was a uh, a thesis I kind of just rolled into in the sense that I was so heavily involved in wind music when I was in my undergrad, mm -hmm. um, and it was such a big part of my life that when I when I arrived at UO, it uh, kind of was the only topic that made sense, like to to talk about wind music, um, and of course the uh, the beacon of all wind music is is Fred and Eastman. Um, and it was also like, it was a neat opportunity to get a chance to, uh, you know, they say never meet your heroes. Not that I met Fred, he was long dead, but, um, <laughs> you know, they never meet your heroes. But it was, a, it was an opportunity for me to like go to Eastman and like poke through the archives and, uh, you know, do that uh, work and, and talk to people down there without, uh, without needing to have the stress of going to Eastman, I suppose. <laughs> uh, and, uh, it was it was a really uh, fun project at the time. It was it was really interesting to uh, go through the archive they had. So what had happened was when when Fennell died, he left basically everything to the Sibley Library that he owned, oh, okay. uh, and that includes like scores, correspondences, letters, uh, wow. notes that he left to his wife, uh, like literally just boxes and boxes of things. And yeah. when I got to it, it was um, completely uncatalogued, and so I got this really rare opportunity to just sit and uh like rifle through uncatalogued boxes of scores and all of his notes and all of his thoughts and uh it was letters between him and kusevitsky and he was uh early correspondences they were telegrams because it was you know in the <laughs> 30s i guess at the time but telegrams between him and uh, lenny bernstein and all these wow. uh, really neat and fascinating things. And, you know, you'd open up a score and it would be his handwritten notes and then it'd be Via Lobos's like responses because they would send <laughs> scores back and forth. Oh, that's so cool. Um, <laughs> it was, it was like, it really was. It was like a really wild uh, thing. But the neat thing was it, you know, you can, you can go see wild things in the library for sure. Every library has kind of uh, a neat collection, but because these were all, 
completely un, uncatalogued. No one knew what the wild things were. You know, you'd open a score and it'd be, uh, you know, it was like a posy score and just like handwritten notes about posy. Like that's neat. And no one knew they existed yet. So like, that's yeah. kind of cool, you know? Yeah. But it was, it was a thesis that I just kind of ended up doing. Yeah. I'll be honest. I haven't read the whole thing. <laughs> but I did. I did read. Of Fair. course, it's on the first couple of pages. The your acknowledgments. <laughs> but uh, to think of um, the impact that uh, you know another past BRP guest, Mark Hopkins, has had uh, to kind of inspire you to go go that way, and, and even his his mm-hmm. connection to Eastman as well with with uh, Doctor Scatterday and and that. So it's very interesting. And I had uh, the the marks had uh, both of them. <laughs> the marks. And, and the marks. Had done a, um, Mark squared. Uh, Mark Square. I don't know if either of them would like that to be honest. No, no. no maybe they would. Maybe they both love it. Maybe one of them would love it and the other one would not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, Mark Scatterday had come up and done a, a conducting workshop the, the year before. Uh, mm-hmm. I went and did my master's and it was, um, I think we did, it was an Alvarez program, if I remember right. I can't remember. Oh, it, was, it was kind wow. of a crazy. Meslanka and Varez, that's what it was. It was a wild wow. Yeah. Wild ride. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Mark was Mark was absolutely hugely influential. Mark is um, Hawkins. I mean, Scanner Day is also very important, I'm sure. But um, <laughs> yeah. Hawkins was a, a very important person. And, and he still is. I, I talk to Mark all the time about, uh, you know, life choices and uh, career path things and kind of what's going on. And he's a good sounding board sometimes, mm-hmm. at least. He's, he's a healthy <laughs> person sometimes. <laughs> Um, yeah <laughs> i'm only laughing because i agree <laughs> yeah like, yeah you know it's like sometimes he really li- it's amazing he'll really lift you up like more than anyone mm-hmm. and then and then other times i'm saying uh that didn't feel good okay we'll move on <laughs> we'll move on uh, there's anyway. nothing like i mean i'm sure you you both obviously know uh there's nothing like watching video of yourself like performing or conducting and then having uh, your mentor sit beside you and be like, <laughs> you're like, don't tell me. I know. I know. <laughs> Just so demoralizing. <laughs> but look at us now. Look at us now. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, now. one thing I, I want to uh, talk about is, uh, you're, you're also, uh, we, we talked about you being a musicologist and a performer, uh, but you're also, you know, a conductor and you lead the Dalhousie University Wind Ensemble, as well as teach music history there, um, and I'm sure other things. Um, but uh, I know you're doing a lot of great work there, and a lot of work that's maybe is non-traditional. The right word, maybe. And and we we talk yeah. about you know the importance of of getting out of the music hall and collaborating outside of our our music bubble. Because I know you're doing a lot of kind of collaborations with other departments. So could you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I've, so I've been at Dal for five years i suppose barring this past uh, year because ensembles didn't mm. run um okay and they are uh wonderful they give me absolute carte blanche to do <laughs> whatever i uh, propose to them they're uh maybe maybe in their naivete when they hired me uh they should give me more boundaries than they do, uh, <laughs> but they don't. And so everything I propose to them, they kind of say, okay, sure. That sounds like a concert that could be called a wind ensemble concert. We'll run with it. <laughs> and uh, 
they they're but they're really nice because they uh the fountain school of performing arts which is the the dalhousie uh, school of music portion is uh the only i believe integrated performing arts uh school east of i think toronto somewhere um but the way they function is it's it's one faculty so it's not a a music department and a theater department and a, a costume studies it's it's one faculty so it's a very uh, fluid space and so the idea of bringing in um, I mean we've worked with I mean literally everybody lighting designers and costume designers and theater artists and poets and um, dancers and and kind of uh, everybody it's not a strange thing we're all in the same space we all go to the same mm-hmm. uh, faculty meetings and everybody's kind of um, already there it's not like uh the, the collaboration feels very natural because you're not trying mm-hmm. to drag people across borders. It's, it's all uh, within house. But one of the, one of the things that I really wanted to do when I started working there um, was break down the idea of what a wing ensemble concert should or could be yeah. in, in basically every possible way from repertoire to venue to um the way we interact and uh, a lot of those um, it's, it's not that they're not important, but conventions of, of performance and, and academia, you know, I really, I don't love when I walk out and players stand and, and kind of like mm-hmm. bow to me. I really, I love that <laughs> yeah. feeling. I don't want yeah. to like bow to an audience. The audience is there on equal playing field with me. Uh, the musicians have just as much to bring even in their undergrad that I ever could. Um, and so even, even down to those things, I, I don't like those conventions and it extends to, if I can not play in a concert hall, I am much happier if we can play in uh, a really versatile space and, and really play with the idea of what that looks like. Uh, it's a much better feeling for me, but that, mm-hmm. that translates to repertoire too. Yeah. We really, rarely play the kind of canon standards and if we do they're in a really specific lens um if we're going to play holst it's for a really intentional reason mm-hmm. it's not that holst isn't great the suites are phenomenal i love performing them but if we're going to do them it's uh because we're talking about you know uh what well, we we did them three years ago i suppose four years ago and we were talking about uh the change in culture in the last 100 years because it was for the 100 year anniversary and uh, mm-hmm. we were having a discussion about decolonizing uh, cis dead white men uh, music and we paired it with music by not dead cis white men <laughs> <laughs> that we could play holst it's important for them to play holst um, and it's beautiful but we need to to have a, an understanding of what it is we're playing. You know, mm-hmm. you can't play uh, Granger without understanding who Granger was and why the music is the way it is. And we have mm-hmm. to have a, a discussion about um, how to appropriately play that. Um, yeah. And so over the past few years, we've really, um, again, Dal should probably uh, rein me in more than they do, but um, <laughs> they, We've really kind of exploded this idea. And the last the last concert we did before the shutdown with the Wind Ensemble, um, we had this wonderful, uh, they're, they're like a phenomenally talented breakcore artist uh, from, from New Brunswick that came down, Indigo Poirier, um, who goes under the name of Wangled Teb. 
Mm. who's a kind of a DJ breakcore artist. And they came down and they're a, a queer indigenous performer. And we programmed on paper this whole concert of uh, we did uh, Whitaker and Shostakovich and some Bach and I don't know what else it was, but we went through this process with Indigo where we were literally ripping apart the scores and we would play four bar snippets at a time, 16 bar snippets. Um, and then Indigo would use that as sampling and Indigo would in the moment live, like sample the ensemble. And we were wow. deconstructing in a very literal way um, these old dead white canon composers and having them uh, performed quite literally through a queer lens in the moment on stage uh, by an Indigenous queer performer. And that feels good. Like, that feels nice. It <laughs> yeah. was uh, also paired with this uh, beautiful, one of the other faculty, Karen McCollum, um, did an interactive projection. So the projections were responding to the sound. So we would get mm -hmm. louder and Indigo would get louder and the projections would start like vibrating in this this hall and they were on all four walls. Like just so much fun. And if we can do yeah. that with a wind ensemble, why would we just walk out and play, <laughs> I don't know, whatever yeah. it is for the hundredth yeah. time and then walk off? That's no fun. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's so cool. I'm yeah. I'm so excited by just just learning that it's it's all one department. I think that that leads to such wonderful collaborative opportunities. I always wished mm -hmm. when I was a student that there were more opportunities to work with other creative people, like people who are dancers or visual artists or designers, all sorts of different kinds of people. But we were so limited to being in mm. our one stream that we were studying at the time. And in the real world, collaboration is, is such an important component to what we all do as artists. So I, I, it's really encouraging to know that those kinds of things are happening, you know, for people at the undergrad level already. That's, that's really cool. It is. And I, I think they, I don't want to put words in any, any of the undergrad students, mouth, but I think they appreciate it. I think they, yeah. <laughs> I, I would have killed to do as an undergrad. I mean, this is not, not to say that I'm the only thing that's interesting that's happening is what I'm doing, but it's the thing I, they, I know most obviously, mm -hmm. but as a, as an undergrad, it would have been the most fascinating thing to me. We did a, a concert in my first year where we were at the, um, uh, it's the Wag Waltic Country Club in Halifax, which uh, is in itself an appropriated Mi'kmaq word, and it's mistranslated and misspelled. Uh, um, and it has a history of being a uh, whites-only club until way further in their history than they would like mm -hmm. to admit. Right. Um, and it's on uh, appropriated land uh, down by the waterfront, the uh, the arm. And it's his old Victorian house. And I think it actually was originally an archbishop's uh, house many, many oh, uh, years ago. And so we did this concert where we were uh, in the house and we had the ensemble spread through uh, these different rooms and we were all playing at the same time. So there was uniquely a vantage point where they could see me uh, from three different rooms. And we had uh, a light show happening in all three different rooms. We really encouraged the audience to just wander through the space and wander through and listen to whatever kind of like sonic things were happening in a different space. You know, go sit by the tuba. It's loud. It's bloody. Go <laughs> sit by the flute. It's whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but we played uh, Philip Glass and we did a bunch of new commissions by by different composers. 
Um, and then we had three indigenous poets and a black Nova Scotian poet come in and uh, work with the space prior to the concert about um, they were very kind to let them into the archive to look at the Wagwaltic's history. And then, you know, these poets spoke about how until tonight they would not have been welcome in this space. Yeah. Like their parents, mm-hmm. their aunts and uncles would never have been allowed to be here. And this is an important thing. We're here. Yeah. And it was, it was during the Canada quote unquote 150. Mm-hmm. And just this idea that somewhere like the Wagwaltic club can exist in name and in land and on space. Uh, and then not, acknowledge or include the people that whose land and language and space it actually is um but like they let me do that (laughs) they let me do this concert (laughs) which was so fun like it's great yeah Yeah. that's incredible it's such a good example of how you know using music as a platform for change and to kind of take back those aspects of of history and rewrite them in a way, you know, that's, that's really, really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the students appreciate it. I I think they enjoy getting a chance to do something really different, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask as a follow-up about, cause you said you, you like to avoid, you know, performing in the concert hall. If there's another option, you, you'll take that. And I was curious about what some of the venues might be, but that's a, that's a really good example of, of one for sure. Yeah, that one was a good one. I mean, it comes with its challenges, obviously. It's not like the our, our poor Jess Mayotte, who is the, the person who runs all the like uh, production side of things. Every time we have a meeting, she just kind of like lowers her head and tries to avoid eye contact with me to, <laughs> not, to not hear where I want to go next. But um, we've done concerts at the White Baltic. We did one at uh, Pier 21, which was really interesting, which uh, for people who are not familiar with Pier 21, it's kind of the Ellis Island of Canada. Um, and so it's a, an immigration space that uh, was where people, it was kind of you know, many people's first point of contact with Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did this concert there with uh, costume studies where they were, um, they had spent the semester designing period costumes to kind of a, a Pier 21 era uh, design. And they made these beautiful dresses. Um, and we did, and we paired it with, uh, like hyper minimalist American, uh, heavy, like John Adams, Z, uh, <laughs> cool. uh, wind music. And then these beautiful gowns <laughs> and they were getting slowly sewed into them. And then we just had this <laughs> for about an hour and a half with no break, just no intermission <laughs> straight through. <laughs> but I love that. It's, you know, why not? Yeah. Push the boundaries. I just want to say as someone, you know, who is often programming concerts. It's just really inspirational to hear about all the really creative things that you're doing. And now like my, my brain is just popping with things that I want to try. Um, but also the, I think the, the importance of, of a word that's going to come up probably a lot in this conversation is barriers and how, what you're doing is really taking those away. Cause I know when we had Armand Hall on, we talked about this and how he's trying to do more outside of the concert hall as well. And what is the, what is the hall at, at Eastman Kodak? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Kodak. Yeah. So the walls of Kodak really act as kind of an electric fence to people who, who, mm-hmm. uh, who want, can have the opportunity to, to attend concerts, but really don't feel welcome. So, and especially hearing, uh, what you, the, the concert that you did with all the rooms and, and inviting the poets and, and how, you know, they, they, they felt that feeling of, of that electric fence being there. 
and and maybe even you know yeah. not a feeling it was a true thing um but no it's 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 so exciting mm-hmm. to hear about all these really cool things i mean i'm i'm pumped up i'm ready to go <laughs> awesome <laughs> So Jacob, you've already touched on this a little bit, um, but could you tell us about your approaches to repertoire selection and the importance of expanding the canon? Yeah, it's it's something that I think is so vital uh, to to any idiom, but like when we're talking when music, but um, I I always remember, and this is just like the musicology side of me thinking, but if we if you were to walk into some concert in Beethoven, uh, you know, some some new piano concerto, that was new music at the time. You heard it once and then some other composer wrote something and you never heard that <laughs> piano concerto again. Yeah. And we uh, have to stop playing the same things over and over and over and over again. They're, some of them are really lovely. I, they really are. It's not that I would ever take Bach out of the library, but... Yeah. You know, we we have a duty to a support the living composers we have because you know if we don't, they're never going to get played. <laughs> we can't continue playing the same uh, seventy things for the next three hundred years. Um, but it's also our duty as people who program concerts to um, play things by people who haven't had. The, the opportunity systemically within institutions to, to get played. You know, it's, um, I, I really see it as our duty as, as people who work in institutions to um, play music by marginalized voices, not out of tokenism or not because it's the, the like hip trendy thing to get on board with, but because mm-hmm. it's really vital that we include those voices into the conversation. I mean, 200 years ago, but now, um, so that we have something sustainable. I mean, there's so much conversation around, um, you know, our orchestras are dying and our, our performance scene is really struggling and we uh, are, are not going to be able to sustain this whole system. But maybe the system is not the thing we should be sustaining. Maybe, maybe the reason yeah. it's not sustaining is because we are not putting in the right work uh, to make it happen. I mean, it's, it's no, uh, shade against, uh, the orchestras, obviously they're, they're just trying their best. But if I see one more pops concert, of, <laughs> you know, ABBA with symphony orchestra or like a Beatles tribute concert, it's clearly not working. We need to like do something else. Um, it's, that's, I, that's my view. I mean, it, and if I can, you know, impress upon students and, and you know, colleagues and, and myself and have an ever-changing view of, of what is important repertoire and whose voices we should be hearing from. Um, that's, a, that's a really positive thing to me. That, that's, uh, that's the work that needs to be done. So I, I really try and program uh, from, a, from as, as diverse a space as possible. And if we're going to perform something that's not from a diverse space it's it's for a really intentional reason we did mm-hmm. um four years ago i guess uh sean medavetsky who's a tableau prophet mcgill came in and was a soloist and we did this really phenomenal tablet concerto for wind ensemble called samsara wow. um which is i mean 
when you think you have a like grasp on rhythm and then you're staring at this score and there's like 14 <laughs> over nines and you're just like trying to count, but Breaks it's still in four. <laughs> yeah, it's well. Um, but we, we did this wonderful concerto and, and uh, Sean Medovetsky was coming and he's such a, a brilliant soloist. Um, and so we paired it with uh, Elgar wrote a crown of India, which is this um, full of anachronistic, um, like terrible tropes uh, piece of music. It's objectively beautiful, but we programmed it to have the conversation of uh, this is not music from India. This is yeah. has yeah. absolutely nothing to do with India. It might be a beautiful piece. Uh, he is uh, stealing what he thinks are tunes that are not tunes from India. He's stealing this idea of what is sounds uh, like it's from India. But here is something that is actually Indian <laughs> and uh, paired with like a tabla soloist who has studied and really put the work into to play this music correctly. Um, and it's it feels better to do that to me. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of across the board. Yeah, and it's 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 so interesting and and very well timed because Kate and I are on this music fest. Canada committee where we're talking about just this very topic and going through the syllabus and our first goal was to subtract some problematic pieces and discuss why they're problematic yeah. for the exact things you're saying um, and mm-hmm. uh, and back to your original point we had debated Granger for I don't know it was like 40 minutes right Kate and yeah. just oh, yeah. go you know why yeah it was and it's it's and it's an important conversation to have, but one of the examples brought up is like this is the be- this is some of the best wind music we have, and uh, mm-hmm. which is true, right? Like students learn mm-hmm. things playing Granger that they won't learn with anything else. Absolutely. Um, but then Kate and I were discussing after, and, and Kate mentioned, well, "Isn't that you know kind of an issue that this is still the best wind music <laughs> that we have? <laughs> so like, what right. can we do to to change that?" And yeah, so. Definitely all the stuff that you're talking about will can help that. But it is an amazing thing to think about. Like, why? Why? Why are we still doing this? Digging our own grave. It is. I mean, it's it, I understand. And I and I grapple with it, too. It's not I, I don't want to make it sound like it's not uh, something that I, I sit and just kind of uh, ponder over for several mm. hours at a time. But how do you how do you wrangle the objective beauty of Elsa's procession to the cathedral with who wrote it like how do you sit there and listen to it and it's absolutely mind-numbingly gorgeous yeah and I have no desire to ever play it again (laughs) it's like a weird conversation it's Mm -hmm. yeah but but I, I think it all comes back to you know we're never going to have another beautiful piece of that scale if we don't stop playing it and allow something else to be written. I'm so glad you said that because that was the exact <laughs> argument in the context of of Granger and all this other, like you said, fantastic, beautiful, well-constructed music that is objectively good. But yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. if we don't make room for what's next, then then we're not going to have new new beautiful powerful works to choose from right so it's we have to consider yeah. that aspect of it as well 
Yeah, and I mean, it's how frustrating. I I'm not a composer, but Kate, I mean, as a composer, like how frustrating is it for you? Maybe you don't want to answer this, but like how frustrating is it for <laughs> composers to sit and watch, you know, concert programs pass by and, and you can say like, I can write something for you. Like, let me write something really beautiful if that's what you want. If you yeah. want something lush and like green and colorful and great, like you can do that. Cool. Yep. Don't play the Wagner. <laughs> like. Yep. Yep. I, I definitely agree. Um, and I think, I think it's, it's more a mentality flip than anything else. If people who are responsible for concert programming are, um, you know, burnt out and unable to invest the time to look for new works or don't have access to a budget to commission new works. Like there are a lot of barriers, um, on, on that front as well, but, uh, we, we've all got a lot of work to do, but it's it's really, really good that we're having these conversations. I think that's a really good starting point. It is. And you're right. It's not that there aren't barriers. It's not that it's easier to go this route. It's infinitely harder. I, yes. <laughs> uh, I spend much more of my time than I would like to admit just thinking of how to fund things or how to make it work or how to get into that space or... Uh, how to find a table player or whatever it is <laughs> or or actually more so than how to find a table player how to find a like a piano accompanist who's going to play the tabla part on piano like all of those things are much <laughs> harder luck. to do but it's so worth it it's so worth it in the end gosh, oh my gosh kate do you know time of the year it is no but i feel like you're going to tell me <laughs> yeah i am it's time for a new issue of the canadian winds journal the biannual journal of the canadian band association i love the canadian winds journal it's full of great articles everything from practical guides for teaching beginners to articles on health and technology as well as study guides to some of our favorite band works, book and CD reviews, and profiles on some of Canada's finest band organizations, conductors, composers, educators, and performers. Canadian Winds also supports the emerging voices in the Canadian wind band community through their undergraduate critical essay competition, with 2021's theme being Decolonizing the Bandroom. If you're an undergraduate student currently studying at or recently graduated from a Canadian institution, you should consider applying by December 17th, 2021. And you might be asking yourself, why? Why, Dylan and Kate? Why would I do this? Well, the winning submission will be published in the spring issue of Canadian Wins, if that's not enough, the winner and runner-up both receive cash prizes. First place being $500 and second place being $300. Whew, I wish I was still an undergraduate student. <laughs> Even if you're not Canadian, you can check out the Canadian Winds Journal. Learn about all the amazing things happening in the Canadian band community and about our people. To see the latest issue, visit canadianband.org download. That's canadianband.org slash download to learn more about how you can get your hands on the latest issue of the Canadian Winds Journal. Speaking of excellent work that is going to 
improve the planet, improve the community. Uh, in, in 2018, you founded Classical Queer, and you've recently entered the podcast world. Uh, so I was wondering if you could tell us uh, why you started this project and, and how you see it contributing to the classical music community. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's funny. I started it so selfishly. It's um, It was not like a, an altruistic, noble thing. I started it because... Uh, <laughs> I wanted to have a, a venue to meet people and talk to people who were so far above my station <laughs> that I uh, would normally never have the opportunity to meet. And so, you know, uh, the first few interviews that I did were talking with uh, Dr. Charles Beale, who's the uh, conductor of the um, New York City Gay Men's Chorus and former conductor of the London UK Gay Men's Chorus, mm-hmm. who is, uh, I mean, his list of collaborators are regularly the new york phil um and past the london phil and just like crazy uh, crazy talented people and I, I interviewed um uh heather gibson who's one of the producers at the national arts center and uh it was it was really genuinely selfish to just try and meet these people and pick their brains about what they were doing and, and what they were up to and why and it was kind of born out of this idea that um you know, there's, there is very poor representation in the queer community and in classical world. And it's not because there aren't queer people working in the classical arts. Um, There's just very, very little representation. And I was just wanting to read about people and their work and and their life, Mm -hmm. you know, before, uh, before the blog started, you could Google um, uh, queer classical musicians and there was a, a a little blog post from classical fm from like 2016 and it was the top 15 queer composers and it was uh tchaikovsky oh. britain <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, and, and and you know six other people who were already dead and then a few yeah. uh living people i was like that that's not a representation of the queer people who are currently alive that just yeah. is not um and so I started it and it, uh, it kind of ballooned into this, um, ongoing project that, uh, has been really, really fascinating. It's become a huge part of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had the opportunity to talk with performers and, uh, conductors and composers from around the world. Um, it's really fascinating and really important to hear from, you know, queer people running, uh, queer choirs in Asia. What does that look like? What does mm-hmm. um, Saint Chu, who runs the Proud Voices Asia, you know, we had this amazing talk about um, the different legal statuses in the nine countries that they run choirs in. And so some countries, uh, they can advertise their concerts. Some they can't. Some they send out mm-hmm. an email blast an hour before and it's, we're going to be in this warehouse in an hour. This is our wow. concert because that's how Pretty unsafe cool. it is. Yeah. Um, like that's a fascinating thing. Or um, talking to uh, Julie Debord, who is now, I think she's on faculty at uh, Michigan, actually. Um, weirdly, <laughs> Doctor. Anyway, she used to run the um, Queer Urban Orchestra in New York. Okay. Um, and her uh, mentor was uh, Marin Alsop. And so to like have that conversation about yeah. what running a queer orchestra in New York looks like, and um, having a queer mentor, and yeah, just a like a really eye-opening, wonderful project that that keeps uh, kind of paying off. It's been so fascinating um, to talk with people. And it's, 
it's because it's it's uh, such a side part of my life it's very fluid as in sometimes <laughs> i go eight months without uh, like posting anything yeah um, and then i get I have, I have a month off and then i post like five interviews in a month but um <laughs> but yeah recently we started a podcast um with uh sammy jane smith uh who uh, i don't even remember how we how we got connected, maybe similarly to, to I don't remember where we met. I don't, yeah, maybe yeah. I just have a problem. Maybe it's more to do with yeah. my memory. Um, but Sammy, Sammy contacted me. Sammy runs um, uh, a radio show on Trans Radio UK, which is a trans-centered um, radio show, not classical-based at all, um, mm. in the UK. Um, but they're just a, a huge music lover, grew up with music, um, but is a, an astrophysicist, astrophysicist, and works as a. Crazy. Um, uh, it it really is. I, I was having a conversation with Sammy the other day, and they said, uh, "I'm so sorry. I'm." They live in northern Sweden, like far, far north Sweden. Um, I work at this uh, university that uh, is a launch site, but also a, a training facility for physicists. And she said, "I'm wow. so so sorry. I'm late. At the, the cosmonauts are here, and I I couldn't get away. And they were talking about all this stuff. And like, I don't speak Russian. And I said, Sammy, oh wow, your work is so much more important. <laughs> Take your time. Yeah, I can't use that A one. Whole other world. <laughs> the cosmonauts. Yeah, um, but yeah, we uh, we started this uh, podcast, and I mean, it's it's very very fresh so far, but." Um, we're uh, last the last one that actually just went up this morning. We we talked with uh, three trans uh, NB and gender nonconforming composers from Scotland um, and Northern England uh, who have a, a collective called Over At, and they uh, wrote this album that they produced last year that's uh, really focused on um, kind of that interstitial moment between transition where where trans voices kind of. Um, in motion and so they kind of latched onto this idea and, and uh recorded all of these artists mid-transition you know having not worked mm -hmm. on their voice having not mm -hmm. um like kind of found their new uh gendered or ungendered voice right. but but really leaned into the uncomfortableness of that like that's a really interesting sound they were all they're all yeah. musicians to begin with but um people who were um mid-transition to hear their voice and to record it and to um kind of break that down and make an album out of it was just like fascinating to talk to you like they're really interesting composers and mm -hmm. yeah it's it's a dream it's it's a great uh thing it's turned into doctoral work which is great um but it's it's a lot of fun yeah that's wonderful we'll make sure to include a link in our episode notes so that in case anybody would like to check it out they can go and do that yeah, please do. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, you know, I think so many times people will come up to me whenever we're, or maybe the same thing happens with you, Kate, you know, <laughs> where, um, like, where do I start? Where do I start? I don't know who, I don't know who exists. And for you to create this platform to uh, share these people's stories and, and experiences is just so important and invaluable uh, for, on so many levels. And speaking of so many levels, just how 
you know, on the pod, on this podcast, we, we, you know, we speak to conductors, we speak to music educators and composers and performers, but you're really, you're talking to administrators, you're talking to people who uh, might not necessarily be involved in music in the, the form, the traditional forms that we think often. So it's, it's really a, a wonderful, a wonderful thing. Yeah. I mean, I, my, my view, and maybe it's, it's because I, um, for better or work within, work within, better or worse, work within uh, conservatories and institutions. And mm-hmm. uh, you see the importance of admin from a, a guiding standpoint. Like admin has a, a lot to do with the guidance of an organization often, mm-hmm. whether Definitely. whether it's intentional or or not or or whatever. But there's, there's a huge portion of that. And to talk to, you know, someone like Heather Gibson, who works at the NAC, about, uh, you know, their guiding principles behind because Heather Heather's a producer who uh, programs the I think it's called Fourth Stage if I remember right Fourth Stage um, it's their pop wing, um, right. but Heather programs you know 160 concerts a year or something. Well, to have a queer person with a queer lens doing that and to shift away from um, the traditional acts that they would bring in it's really, really vital. Like that's important to have that person in that space. One of the things that Heather said that I, it sticks with me so vividly is when she took over the job, um, the first thing she did was uh, remove all the gender uh, language from subscriber lists, from uh, notifications, from emails, from internal documents, um, Mm. down all the way down to like ushers greeting people. Stop Mm. saying good evening, sir. There's no point. Like you have no idea that that person wants to identify with sir or not. Um, mm. Just say, welcome to the National Arts Center. Where, where is your seat? Like it's just as yeah. friendly. Um, yes. But those, but that's like an administrative thing. That's, that's, mm-hmm. but it has such an impact on the arts. It has such an impact on um, the other side. So it is, it's performance, but it, it does have, uh, have to do with basically everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, those those things that are often overlooked are are so important, though. I mean, it, it reminds me of a situation I faced recently where I, I convinced an organization to modify their um, contract agreement to have gender neutral um, terms throughout the contract uh, because I I would have had to sign this contract that said, you know, the composer will, um, you know, give over his music to this time like it just it was automatically filled out I don't think they've ever worked with a composer who was not a man um you know and it was not intentional their oversight but bringing it to their attention Mm -hmm. now they're able to just have a contract that's going to apply to everybody from now on and those little details really do make an impact it's uh, you're so right it's it's funny to me now and maybe it's just because I like I'm too much in the soup of like queer theory, but it's funny to me now to like read a document and it says um, he or she. Well, it's yeah. it's more letters. Just right there, Just like right it's, there. it's actually I know. I taking know. up more space. <laughs> <laughs> it's easier. I know. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. true. Uh, so you you mentioned that all of this work has led to PhD studies, and we wanted to ask about this. So this year you started your PhD studies in queer music making, city planning, and queer urban communities and gender and sexuality at Concordia University. Could you tell us a little bit about your research? We know it's in the early stages, um, but what you've done so far and, and what inspired you to further your studies? Yeah, it's it's a. Um... 
you know, when you hear it out loud, it's a it's a weird mix of things. It makes sense <laughs> in my head, but when you read off the list, it's it's bizarre. Um, but it it does. I swear, it all ties together. Um, it's. <laughs> Uh, largely a project that's that's queer musicology and ensembles uh, and studying how queer people, uh, queer musicians work together and create and the kind of othered process to um, how queer ensembles kind of interact and, and work artistically. Um, but on a larger scale, it's how uh, queer people within the classical arts interact with their cities, their institutions they work with, how... Um, city planning and infrastructure and, uh, you know, where arts funding goes and how that is allotted and how we decide where and when to build uh, concert halls. Not that we're building concert halls anymore, but like where those <laughs> things kind of happen. Um, and it's, it's you know, a, a kind of an interesting case study uh, is, is, you know, Place des Arts in Montreal, like where that is and who funded it and the number of queer people who work there and its proximity to the neighborhood, the village. Um, and what is that interaction? What is that municipal interaction? Um, how do those arts institutions uh, and their queer populations work with their broader communities and uh, who does it serve? And it's, uh, I mean, like you say, it's so far, it's, it's very early stages, um, but it's, it, it's, you know, vaguely an extension of, um, the classical queer world of things that I'm doing, mm -hmm. but it's um, certainly Canada focused, which classical queer is not Canada. Classical queer is, is international, but mm -hmm. my doctoral research is very much focused on, on Canadian queer mm -hmm. classical performers. Um, but it's, it's interesting as somebody who has uh, two like very old school music degrees um, <laughs> to work in a geography department and to uh, <laughs> work within like a city planning design department. That's like a really interesting uh, yeah. switch to me <laughs> for better words. <laughs> but, um, but no, it's, it's really interesting. It, it, it just kind of, again, broadens my um, uh, network of queer musicians and, and it's, important to highlight them and to see how they work and and really celebrate the uh other way other product and other other uh end result of, of queer musicians and how people work in that space you know we were talking earlier about um getting outside the concert hall or, or getting outside the box and mm -hmm. one of the things that i'm such a huge advocate for is is in both concept and, and actualization, like not only getting out of the box, but realizing there is no box to get out of. Like there is nothing <laughs> yeah. that we need to uh, remove ourselves from. Like right. there, there is no reason for that. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's kind of a, a that project, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, it was, it was started with uh, the classical queer, but it's it, so the other the other side of, of things. It was two years ago, I suppose, I was the music director for a national tour of Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which is a nice. uh, like a trans rock musical. And if you're like a Broadway fan, it's, uh, it's, like, a, it's like a good old off-Broadway yeah. yeah. um, <laughs> punk, punk musical, um, which I'd been obsessed with for years, like absolutely obsessed with. And then uh, a friend of mine uh, was, was playing Hedwig and needed a music director and uh, again, I, I interlope as a pianist and 
and we'll do that when when the situation <laughs> arises. So I, I took over and was was music directing for this tour, but it was it it a kind of a confluence of things that uh, it became so obvious to me that uh, all I want to do in every possible facet of my life is to work in a queer space and to work in an othered space and to work in a space that is um, trying to, you know, raise the voices of people who just have not had their voices raised ever. And so Hedwig was a really eye-opening experience for me. It's, uh, it's as far from classical as you can possibly get. It's it's (laughs) a lot of uh, screaming and punk and there's a lot of like uh, spitting of beer on people and, (laughs) Which we can't do because of COVID, obviously, right now. Aww. But uh, it's kind of a wild ride. But uh, it was it was really transformative for me to sit behind the piano and sit and watch these audiences of people. Um, if you know the show, it's a fairly emotional, uh, intense show at times. And to sit and watch the audience people like holding their partner and just like hysterically crying because it's so intense, like that's beautiful. I want to work there. Like that's yeah. a, it's a great space to work in, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's fantastic. And uh, yeah, it's, it's so, it's so interesting. Just, I know, I know like we, we didn't keep in touch much since, since band camp, but to, to hear your, hear your <laughs> path and just not realizing how varied it was, but yet how it all connects is, it's just so interesting and how your knowledge of like your early studies really helps your programming and when you were at Dal and how you can start dismantling barriers. And like you said, the, the box isn't there. It's what does Ben Zander say? It's all invented. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but no, it's, it's really fantastic to, to hear about all of the, all this work that you're doing. And um, I, I guess we'll use the word barriers again. <laughs> what are some of the maybe barriers or challenges faced by queer musicians and, and what can we do as teachers, peers and community members to, to be better allies yeah, it's it's a good question. It's like ally is such a a, a funny word in the in the queer community, uh, and Republic, it comes with like yeah, a lot of like <laughs> like maybe baggage is not the right word, but like it comes with a lot of baggage. Yeah. Um, I, I think the like visibility is just so you cannot overstate it. The idea that seeing yourself represented is so powerful mm-hmm. we did a we did a show in in fredericton with with the dow group the same the same one we did at the wagwaltic but we took it to dow or took it to fredericton um but we swapped out poets we, we swapped out um uh local poets so we had uh, lucas crawford who's a trans poet at unb but in fredericton and Lucas came and, and spoke and we did the same show and it was the same themes about um, being othered and, and the music was really physically spaced and, and in a really uh, kind of strange format. And we got to work with the kids at FHS, uh, Fredericton High School. And um, and it, you know, when you when you arrive in a place as a clinician or, or a conductor, as you, as you both well know, like you kind of, it's, it's whirlwind, you go, you do your rehearsals, it's, you get two hours and it's, you know, wild and then you go have dinner and there's a concert and it's, it's all <laughs> kind of intense. And um, so we did it and we worked with these like 70, 70 or 80 kids in the, in the Fredericton High School band and 
we finished and you know the show was whatever the show was and we we had already done it two or three times at that point so it was kind of old hat and we were leaving and this group of i don't know five or eight kids uh stopped lucas and myself on our way out and they were just and, and this is not a like pat us on the back thing but they were just so appreciative to have seen queer people performing Mm -hmm. they had never seen in their like education to that point in a concert a queer person like unabashedly getting up and talking about being queer as Mm -hmm. a poet as a conductor uh and purposefully performing music from uh like a a BIPOC composer and a queer composer. Like that was so radical to them, but it was so important for them to see. And it's so important for everybody to see. And I, I always say like the more genuine integration and visibility we can, integration is not a great word. I take that one back. The more (laughs) visibility we can uh, bring to uh, queer composers and and other composers and racialized composers, the better we serve our students. The, without the tokenization of, uh, you know, we're going to listen to uh, black composers this week. And then never again, <laughs> like yeah. that's yeah. not, that's not, a, uh, that's not a, a healthy way to, to bring those voices in. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to think, you know, classroom teachers and, and band teachers, and uh, we're often playing examples. We often play, you know, here's a, a piano sonata. Well, choose, choose the person playing it who is not a, a cis white man. Like let's, let's pick somebody yeah. else to play that. If you're going to listen to, yeah. Uh, Haydn sonata, pick somebody else. Uh, and if you don't have to listen to Haydn, if you just need to listen to a piano piece, pick a living uh, marginalized composer to do that. Like yeah. if, if it's about filling the the slot of I need to teach the kids piano, cool. There's Here's a list of like 400 piano composers who you should be listening to instead of uh, yeah. Haydn in that situation. Um, and so I, I think it's it's more about... Um, recognizing that there is uh, there's an opportunity that we have as teachers and as educators and as conductors and composers and people who work with groups to to bring in so many other voices because um, all the all the traditional voices they got their airtime they got it they're good no one's gonna forget their name. they're fine let's let's bring in somebody else but uh in terms of like struggles i I think there's still like the orchestral world and the the band world and there's still this pervasive thought about well we don't have to talk about sexuality like why why do we need to talk about somebody's uh orientation or gender like Mm -hmm. i hear sometimes you know they're a good player they're a good player i don't need to know you know (laughs) either who they sleep with or who their gender is yeah but that's saying that that is not a, an integral part of that person, which I'm going to assume it is. I, my gender and sexual identity is a, is a huge part of who I am outside of being a musician. So why would it not be a part of who I am as a musician? Mm-hmm. Um, and it affects how I play. I, uh, you know, as a conductor, 
I will hear different things and have a different emotional response to different moments and something, and I will conduct it differently. I will interact with the ensemble in a different way from a, a, a heterosexual, uh, affluent white male composer or conductor. You know, it, we were talking about Scatterday, and, and Scatterday is an obviously phenomenal conductor, but Scatterday is like a six foot six marble man, <laughs> straight American human. Yeah. He walks on the podium and he has this like obvious feeling of belonging and you interact with Scatterday in that way. That's not me. The ensemble is going to sound different because I present as a queer man walking onto the podium. Mm-hmm. And so like that, that conversation needs to still happen. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it's it's kind of come up in other ways. I know Angela Schroeder a couple of weeks ago talked about kind of that exact thing that her as as a woman getting up on the podium uh, and she she, uh, she calls herself more of a nurturer and, you know, and just how how that is shown on the podium, how that's different. And it's it's mm-hmm. it's so it's so often, you know, even in my own conductor education, uh you know, you were supposed to look a certain way. You're supposed to hold yourself to a certain mm-hmm. a, a way or whatever it is. But yeah, so what you're saying is just so, so, so important to hear. Yeah. Yeah. We have, <laughs> we have a lot of work to do. I apologize for my sigh. I'm just thinking, I'm thinking a yeah. lot, making a lot of connections here. Um, but it, it is, it is encouraging, um, you know, to be reminded of the ways that we can all contribute to moving forward and mm-hmm. uh, making the world a better place for those who come next, you know, I think, I think that's fantastic. So we, we sadly have come to our final question of the formal interview anyway, but we are going to go on to record a super fun bonus episode for our Patreon community. And so people who are listening, if you would like to hear this awesome bonus episode and our pretty extensive back catalog now of other bonus episodes and exciting content, please go to patreon.com slash bandroompod to check that out. And so Jacob, thank you so much for all of the perspectives and stories and everything that you've shared with us so far. It's been enlightening and inspiring. And although you've given us so much advice already, we're wondering if you could give one piece of advice to an up and coming conductor or music educator, what would it be? I have a stock answer because it's what I always uh, think about (laughs) and it's uh, play or conduct everything you possibly can get, get into every ensemble, learn every style of music, learn as many instruments as you can get proficient on um, become involved in every possible aspect, be an administrator for a group, um, play piano for one, play trumpet in an orchestra, play cello to the best of your ability in something else, um, play in a punk band, sing in a choir. It's uh, served me so well to have a wide breadth of experience. We no longer live in this world that you like, you know, go to school as a violinist and you, uh, you know, go to Manus and then get a a master's and you audition for some orchestra and get a lifetime job. That's not a <laughs> thing anymore. Uh, it is for a, such a small percentage of people. But what yeah. is a thing is, is you know, conduct a wind ensemble and then uh, conduct a choir and then be a clarinetist somewhere and like play in a new music group and then, 
you know, play lute in a early music <laughs> ensemble. Like that is much more viable and possible. Yeah. Um, and it's not to say that you shouldn't like specialize and you shouldn't be like the best that you can possibly be on a home instrument. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously that's, that's important, but um, I, I tell my students all the time, like if, if you think that you're going to uh, graduate with an undergrad in flute and then have a job, that's not a, not an option. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only Gotta one. Gotta be well-rounded and multifaceted now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really great to hear advice that, you know, I can visibly see in your own path that you've told us and, and all the fantastic work. And, uh, you were talking about when you started uh, classical queer, how it was kind of a selfish endeavor. And, um, I think today for me is, is one of kind of those examples where I've just, it's been so eye opening and, um, kind of, you've lit a spark of creativity in me again, <laughs> you know, the pandemic really beats us down when it comes to things. And I'm just like, oh, I can't wait to get oh back God, to normal, yeah. <laughs> but how about we get back to better? And, and this conversation has really inspired that in me. And, and just thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast and, and sharing your perspective and your stories. It's just, I can't wait to share it. Oh, thank you. It, it's, it's so fun. Yeah, this is great. Thanks so much for spending time with us in the band room. If you want to learn more about anything that we discussed in today's episode, check out the links found on our website, bandroompod.com. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe to the Bandroom podcast. Give us a rating and review and tell all your friends about how much you enjoyed it. If you really love the show, maybe you should consider donating to our Patreon page where you can support BRP and get some extra incentives in return. Or you can buy some sweet BRP merch, helping to offset podcast hosting costs and investments into new equipment so that we can continue to bring you great content and great people. Follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube to keep up with what's on the go. If you have any thoughts on today's episode, leave us a comment on our website, bandroompod.com, and your comment might be featured in a future episode of BRP. Stay safe and be well, bandies. Thanks again for stopping by the band room. <laughs>